come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode 16 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr here and for this episode is going to be the second of featuring films with african-american kind of backing to it as the movie that i will do for that is abby as well as i'm doing another featured review of after midnight with what i'm dubbing the abby double feature and i'm also going to have many reviews of eat brains love vfw dr jekyll and mr hyde the 1912 short film as well as a documentary of best worst movie so what i'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the first musical break before i get into those mini reviews enjoy For my first mini review of this week, it's going to be Eat Brains Love from 2019. 
This is directed by Rodman Flender. This is written by Mike Hero and David Strauss. It stars Jake Cannaval, Angelique Rivera, and Sarah Yarkin. This is a comedy horror romance from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a laugh-out-loud, funny, surprisingly romantic zombie road trip movie filled with heart and brains. Now, this is the second film of the opening night of the Nightmares Film Festival. Just looking at the title, I figured this would be a Zomcom, for sure. Interestingly enough, I got to see the Eastern United States premiere, and the director was actually in the crowd. I decided to give it another viewing when it came back to the Gateway Film Center, and it is now getting its wide release in 2020. And we are first given some voiceover narration to get us up to speed. There's a zombie virus that is going around, but it is being kept secret by the government. It doesn't spread in the traditional way that we know for zombies, though, as it is only transmitted through sex. The government has created a secret group to hunt them down, and this group uses psychics to find out where they are as well. And just to kind of give you just a little bit of more background information on what we're working with here, is that we have a young man, our name of Jake Stevens, who is portrayed by Cannaval. He is having a dream where he's making out with Amanda Blake, and we learn that he's that stoner kid who really doesn't have any aspirations and is kind of just moving through life without really much of a purpose, where Amanda is portrayed by Rivera, is the like, head cheerleader, and she is dating Chaz Slade, who is Ty Headley. Now, we end up figuring out soon after that they end up both have contracted the zombie virus, and they have a bloodbath in their local cafeteria where they attack their friends. But then from there, they are rescued before they are hunted down and killed by the government by a couple of other zombies who take them and kind of fill in all the backstory of what they need to know. And it should be pointed out that Cass gives us some voiceover narration to fill in the backstory, and she is Yarkin. Now, she works for this government group, and it is led by Fabian, who kind of has some nefarious plans about what to do with these zombies. Now, I should actually give credit to Hero and Strauss as they introduce an interesting concept for the zombies. You're still a normal person until you get hungry or their adrenaline starts to pump. So it's a similar take on the werewolf idea. Just not making it a sexually transmitted disease is something that I thought was pretty interesting. These zombies can also run and still talk when they're normal. And they can even talk a little bit while they are zombies. It's just not as complex and more basic. And I personally don't mind this change as this is a genre that is a little bit overplayed. So they gave us their basic rules for them and uh, they work well within them. The title's a bit misleading, though, as they do eat more than just brains. As I stated in the beginning, this is definitely a horror comedy, leaning more towards the comedy, if I'm going to be honest. I did find this to be pretty funny, though, and it had me cracking up throughout. Jake really does make me laugh as he does embody this stoner kid character. He also plays well off of Amanda and Cass. The two of them even play off well off of each other as they do get somewhat catty as they both have interest in Jake. The situations that we get work toward the humor as well. And if you know me, these type of films either work or they don't. And I definitely had fun with this one. Something I wasn't the biggest fan of is the idea of the psychic. I get why they're there as it helps to move along the exposition. It also allows cast who never actually met Jake fall in love with him. Now talking about being in love, it is a tad bit unbelievable that Amanda would fall for Jake as quickly as she does. I am willing to give some leeway as they're dealing with the same thing so they have that connection. They're forced to be together and some of the situations they go through are pretty stressful, so I guess I can see it. I just think it's a little bit too quickly, but I don't mind, you know, by the end of it if they, you know, are madly in love or whatnot like that. And then as for the pacing, it has a runtime of 87 minutes, which I think is a perfect length. We're introduced to their world and the rules of it immediately, in which time things really get into it. The drawback to this being a comedy is that it doesn't necessarily build tension. I think it gives too much levity to that, and... I don't ever really feel like the characters are necessarily in peril, so that's kind of my issue. I do think the ending is interesting, and I like that it doesn't completely explain everything and leaves some of us, you know, to wonder of some about things. And I heard that this is based off a series of novels, so I wonder if this does well enough if they will, you know, continue to build on this mythology and continue on the story or not. As for the acting, I thought it was pretty good. Cannaval is hilarious to me. He is quite oblivious at times, and I like that he's the unpopular guy who is in love with the beautiful girl in school. He gets nervous around here, and it felt quite natural. Rivera plays well off of him, and she had, brings quite a bit of humor herself. 
I also thought she was absolutely gorgeous, and we see her in a bra and panties quite a few times, so just so you're aware. Yarkin is also cute, and I like her as the opposite of Amanda. She's quirky, and it definitely helps her role. There's also an ongoing joke that she looks like Ripley from Alien, which made me laugh. The cameo by Fabian I thought also worked, as he just does so well at being this villainous type character. And the rest of the cast just rounded this out for what was needed. Something I was quite impressed by were the effects. They went practical with most of them from what I could tell. And there are a few things that do look fake, but most of the wounds and the blood looked real across the board, if I'm going to be honest. Being as a comedy, they can go slightly over the top with them and still keep me on board. There was some CGI as well, especially when coming to the psychic aspects. That doesn't really bother me. I will say, though, there is one gunshot in this movie that was done with CGI, and I absolutely thought it looked horrible. The cinematography was fine, and I like what they do when we're seeing things from Cass's point of view with her abilities, as it's fuzzy around the edges, so I thought that was a good touch. Now, with that said, this is definitely a fun movie that has some flaws. It is an interesting comedy with horror and romance elements. I like this new type of zombie that is created here, as it sets it apart from this other films in the genre. I think this has a good runtime, but being that it is a comedy, it doesn't necessarily build the tension that is needed. I never really felt that the characters were in peril, like I said. I did like the acting, though, across the board, and the effects were pretty solid as well. Just a few blips where I wasn't impressed. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it also didn't hurt the movie either. I found this to be just slightly above average. If you're a fan of horror comedies, especially ones with zombies, I would recommend giving this a viewing. And my rating here will be a 6 out of 10. Alright, and next up, I have Psycho 3 from 1986. This was actually directed by Anthony Perkins, who stars in this. And it was written by Charles Edward Pogue, or Pogue And this is based off of characters from Robert Block. And this also stars Deanna Scarwood and Jeff Fahey. This is a horror mystery thriller film from the United States. It currently sits on a 5.4 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. The synopsis being Norman Bates falls in love with a fallen nun who stays at the Bates Motel alongside a drifter and a curious reporter. Meanwhile, Mother is still watching. Now, this is a movie that I heard about right after college, or at least I think that's when I did. I know I saw a bit of the second movie with my dad when we were flipping through the movie channels when I was home at some point. But I'm not entirely sure when that was. Now, after college, I obtained this DVD that I end up watching this on. But it had been some time since I finally got around to watching it as it had been close to a decade. Podcast really spoke about how these Psycho sequels were actually pretty solid. So when I heard about that, it was something that I made sure I moved up on my 2C list and then finally now got around to seeing it. And then just to kind of clear up a little bit of what the synopsis is stating, this starts off with a Maureen Coyle, who is Scarwood, as she is a nun, but we end up learning that she hasn't fully taken her vows yet. She is attempting to kill herself as she's in the top of a bell tower in a church where Sister Margaret, who is Patience Cleveland, among other nuns, are trying to stop her and talk her down from the ledge. But this doesn't end well, and Maureen ends up leaving in shame. She ends up getting picked up by Dwayne Duke when she gets to the road, as he is Fahey. Now, the two of them head together on the road, as Duke is doing most of the talking. They end up parting ways, though, when, due to a storm, they have to pull over, which is, I took as paying homage to the original Psycho, and she's kicked out of the car when she rebuffs his advances. Now, we end up shifting over to the Bates Motel, where this is following the events of the previous film with Norman who is being Perkins here, as he is reopening up his motel. Duke ends up there and inquires about the help wanted sign. Norman is pretty excited, as I think a lot of this is just loneliness, and hires him on the spot. He then gives him a room to stay in and lays out what his job duties and what is needed of him. Now, there is talk around the town about Emma Spool from the previous film as she has went missing. This has brought a reporter in Tracy Venable, portrayed by Roberta Maxwell, to the town. She wants to interview Norman, but he just wants to be left alone. He is triggered when Maureen comes into the diner, as she has a similar haircut and her initials be an MC, which Norman notices on her suitcase, and he believes her to be Marion Crane. Now, Maureen ends up at the motel to stay as well, and this triggers Mother with Norman. 
And this leads to something interesting that could lead to redemption for not only Norman, but for Marine, or it could also lead to him snapping completely. Now, I wanted to lay out as much of that as I could without spoiling or going too much into detail, but I do think this is another interesting sequel that we get here. The first and major thing is that this doesn't seem to violate any continuity, which I thought was interesting that Psycho 2, which came out 23 years after the original, and this one came out another three years later. So this doesn't also take place in that new time frame. This takes place right after Psycho 2 ends, which is what I was getting at, that both of these do well and not violate anything that happened in the movie Psycho. And then since he's the director as well as the star here, I kind of want to go over the character of Norman first. Something I found intriguing about the previous film was how it ended and where it leaves him. This one, as I said, picks up right after that one ends, so he's still unbalanced from getting out of the mental hospital, as well as dealing with what he had to previously. This is interesting as I'm saying he's still mentally unstable. Maureen comes into the diner and then stays at his motel, and he mistakes her for Marion Crane. When Mother visits her, there's something that shocks Norman back and gives him, like I said, a chance at redemption. Things get interesting when people start to visit and stay at the motel again. And then we also have the interesting aspect of Maureen. She was sheltered from making decisions from what she tells and decided to become a nun. The pressure of the vows got to her and she cracked. Now she goes to see a Father Brian who is Gary Bayer, who is also a psychiatrist, and he tries to make her see that she doesn't have to kill herself instead of dealing with her problems. This is interesting that she finds solace in Norman as we see he's not stable either. So we have two people who mentally are very fragile trying to find solace in each other, which doesn't sound like a good recipe, and it does for one for disaster. Now, the other two major players here, we have Duke and Tracy. They also add an interesting dynamic. Duke is a scumball. He tries to rape Marine, and we see that he's a womanizer who treats him like crap. Now, there's an interesting interaction between him and Norman after... Duke kind of finds out some information about him. Now, Tracy feels more like Lila from the previous movie in that she doesn't trust Norman, but I also think that by prodding, she's making his mental state even worse. So it's almost her creating a self-fulfilling prophecy in her eyes where she is the one making Norman kind of get closer to cracking. What I also found interesting is that this plays like an odd slasher. If you've seen the previous two movies, you know who the killer is. This does seem to add some interesting things, though, where there are a couple times where I was questioning if that was the case. And I think having layered characters makes me wonder if they're doing something different. I do like this concept for sure, as it takes something that should be very formulaic and predictable and turn it on its head a bit. Now, I will warn you, though, there isn't the highest body count here. The ending is quite interesting, as it really embodies something that I liked with what they're going for. And I'll also say, I never got bored here and it kept my interest straight through. Even though I broke down the characters, I thought the acting was good across the board. Perkins is great as Norman. It is interesting before taking on that role back in the original, he was just had that look of being the boy next door. We still get some of that here. And there was a moment where he just legitimately smiles that I kind of felt like I can see where this idea about him came from. But he does so well in showing us that he's broken as well. And he continues just to build on that. Scarwood I thought was interesting as a female version of Norman. Now, she's not as violent as he is in her past, but it is still an interesting look as she helps and harms his psyche. As we see, she's pretty fragile herself. But he's just solid as well. I really recently saw him in a few different things, and this role is just a bit different from those. He's a bad guy here, and the more we see, the less I like of him. But I have to give him credit, though, as he plays this so well. Maxwell is also solid in what she's doing with the rest of the cast, rounding this out for what was needed. As for the effects, they're done practically, and I'm assuming a lot of that comes from this is the heyday of the slashers in the 80s. This is light on the deaths for a movie like that, though. But it is still quite effective. The blood looks good. And I mean, the knife is a primary weapon here, so it really, you know, embodies the idea of slashers. And I also have to give credit as the cinematography was well done. And now with that said, this is another sequel to a classic that I really thought was solid. I thought this has an interesting character study that is done through a slasher film. It isn't the most traditional there, but it really does fall into that sequel category. What makes it even more interesting, though, is that this plays with things to make me question. The acting was good. I never got bored with that. And the effects were also well done. The soundtrack fit for what was needed. And I would rate this as an above average film coming in with a 7 out of 10 here. And then that will move me to VFW. 
This technically was made in 2019, but is now getting its wide release. This is directed by Joe Bigos. It is written by Max Brayeller and Matthew McArdle. This stars Stephen Lang, William Sadler, and Fred Williamson. This is an action horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of war veterans must defend their local VFW post and an innocent teen against a deranged drug dealer and his relentless army of punk mutants. Now, this is a movie that came onto my radar when I had heard the director, Bigos, get interviewed on Shockwave's podcast about this movie. He talked about the premise, and I was definitely intrigued to check it out. I lucked out as this was shown at the Nightmares Film Festival for its Ohio premiere. I got the chance to see it again at the Gateway Film Center when it got its wider release. Now, the synopsis that was given on IMDb is a little bit misleading, I don't necessarily know if I would call these people mutants. The only reason that they're kind of mutant is the fact that they are hopped up on this drug called Hype, which we're given this in a backstory. As it takes place today, it's kind of in an alternate timeline, and this drug gives them energy kind of like meth, but it also erodes their mind into mush. So that's really the only way that I would consider them to be mutants. Like, they're not changed into something like X-Men or something you'd see in, like, Toxic Avenger or anything like that. But we are filled in with the backstory, as I said, and there's a local drug dealer named Boz who's portrayed by Travis Hammer. They're in an old movie theater with his second-in-command being Gutter, who is the beautiful Dora Madison, as well as Rhodey, who is Graham Skipper, Tank, who is Josh Ethier, and then we get an interaction with a drugged-out person who has some sort of relationship with Boz, and her name is Lucy and portrayed by Linnea Wilson. And then to kind of sync this up, we have Stephen Lang. His name is Fred Paris in the movie, and he's in his pickup, like I said, as he collects Abe Hawkins, who is Williamson. And then when they get there, that we realize that there is another man, Walter Reed, who is sleeping in the bed of the truck, as he is portrayed by William Sadler. Now, it is Fred's birthday, so there's a bunch of them there to celebrate, including Lou Clayton, who is Martin Cove. As he's a used car salesman, there's also Doug McCarthy, portrayed by David Patrick Kelly, and Thomas Zambransky, who is George Went. And then just returning home later in the night is Sean Mason, who is Tom Williamson, as he is a, a veteran who is currently just serving. So he comes home and decides to spend part of his night at this VFW. Now what ends up happening is there is Lucy's younger sister's Lizard, portrayed by Sierra McCormick. She steals a stash of hype from Boz to kind of get back at him as she's upset as to what happened to her sister. Now, he ends up seeing her as they're doing this, and she flees and goes to this local VFW where he decides that he is going to kill everybody inside there to get his stash back. Now, just to set the stage here, I really like Bigos' previous film, Bliss, a lot. If you heard my top movies from last year, that one was right there in my top five. And VFW was a little bit farther down the list, so it won't be on my year-end this year since I did watch it last year, but I'm going to include it for other lists that I do for anybody else that, you know, kind of ask listeners or anything like that to provide them. Now, what's interesting about this movie as well is if you're a fan of horror or cinema in general, which I think Bigos is, you can really tell. This is more grounded in reality than his previous film, and I would actually say this is a love letter to John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And to kind of set this one apart, though, it goes much more brutal than that one does. Now, we get an interesting dynamic here. Instead of using police officers, we have veterans. Now, these guys really don't have any right to do what they're doing, aside from they're being attacked, so it's in self-defense. I find it interesting, though, that most of these men are either Vietnam or Korean vets. So, you know, we have this older people than what they're fighting against. Now, I feel like there's definitely a subtle nod to the older generation being tougher for sure. The drugged out people that were they're going up against though are relentless and i also like that if you have a group of veterans that are like sean's age i don't know if this would necessarily be as impactful since they'd be more on top of their game this is a bit fair in my eyes to have these older men fighting them off and then as i've said this one is more brutal than assault on precinct 13 and it's been a while since i've seen that original film i do know that it came out in 76 right there in the middle of the exploitation era and that one was much more of an action film this movie really does amp up the violence and gore, which I think is an interesting idea and way to take this. And I also kind of found it a little bit intriguing that there were some brutal things that were done during the Vietnam and Korean Wars, which 
one of the things that always come to mind is there was a lot of people that were protesting, calling them baby killers and things to that extent. So I find it interesting to have these guys as our protagonists here, just because they do have this, you know, what they did while they were in the military kind of hidden deep down. Not to say any of these people were horrible, like some of the people that were, you know, committing those atrocities back in those wars, but just that they are former soldiers, so they are trained and know what to do. It's just it took something like this for that to come back out and to make them almost feel alive again. As for the pacing, we're clocking this in at about 92 minutes, and I think that was a perfect length. We get all of the characters introduced and the main issue of what is happening right afterwards. These attacks come in waves where the villains don't realize how strong these vets are, so they're constantly having to try to rethink their plan of attack. And it does kind of seem like a chess match where it's, you know, move, counter move type situation. There's definitely some heart to this, and it really makes Lizard as well as the veterans consider a different look at their situations, which I think is interesting, especially where we have like Lou, who is a used car salesman, thinks he can talk his way out of this. So we get some butting of heads, but then we do see that, you know, rank does come into it. So they kind of fall back into their original thought process of when they were in the military. I thought the ending was solid for sure as what the film was building for. Now I did kind of bring up that I do feel like it's a bit misleading that these mutants, as they're really just drugged out people, the more I'm thinking about it, I think this is really just kind of setting up that this isn't a post-apocalyptic world. This is, you know, our time. And I did hear a podcast, which I believe was No More Room in Hell talking about how the opening shots making it look like Flint, Michigan, which I think is dead on to kind of make the us as an audience realize this is a rough part of town and the cops aren't really going to be there to kind of help or anything like that. So it's really just try to survive the night any way that you can. And from here, this cast is really an all-star group of people who were famous, you know, in the 70s and 80s for sure. I've only seen Lang in a few things, but he definitely kills this role. He has such a screen presence and I feel like he really was a military man just the way he talks and you know, when he did, I was listening to everything he had to say. I thought Cove was great as the snake here, but we do see that he has a good side to him as well. I like that his nature and sense of duty are in conflict. Sadler and Kelly are both great as well as both Williamson's. McCormick is cute, and I like the growth of her character to see the problem in her current existence. There's something about Dora Madison that I just love as well. She doesn't have a major part like she did here in Bliss, but she's another one that I can just feel her presence regardless. I really have a big crush on her from the past roles that I've seen her in as well. Shoutouts to Went, Skipper, and Ethier for their parts, as I feel them and the rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed. The effects in this were really good as well, as I've already said. And this is pretty brutal. From what I could tell, almost all the effects here are practical, and they definitely made me cringe at times. It is a bit over the top, but while still looking real, but it also helps me to cheer on these guys who are fighting for, you know, what is right. I thought the cinematography was well done. There's definitely a vibe of the 70s with some of the lighting as well as that gritty feel. And it just makes me almost feel like this is a modern grindhouse film. So the last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. I like that it definitely took on a synth feel and it really does feel like it's paying homage to Carpenter. I noticed a few times where some of the selections could fit right into the film that it is mimicking, and it also helped to build tension as there's real fear that these guys aren't gonna survive the night. And that definitely works for me. Now, with that said, I'm glad that I got the chance to catch this one on the big screen a couple of times. After that second viewing, I like it even more. It's a film that does something that isn't completely original, but it is brutal and I caught myself getting excited watching the things that are happening. There are some interesting underlying issues with different eras of people and doing the right thing. I think it's paced in a way where it moves through things and it never gets boring. Dug the ending, thought the acting was really good across the board. The effects are solid and I love the soundtrack paying homage to Carpenter. I feel that this is a good movie and definitely one that I would watch with friends as I also think this is really fun. I would come in with my rating here as an 8.5 out of 10. Okay, and that is going to take me to the next film that I watched, which this time is going to be a short. It is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1912. This is directed by Lucius Henderson, and it is from the play from George F. Fish, Luel Forpog. Thomas Russell Sullivan and Robert Louis Stevenson. Is this stars James Cruz, Florence Labatty, and Marie Eline. This is a short drama horror sci-fi from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.9 
on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, Dr. Henry Jekyll experiments with scientific means of revealing the hidden dark side of man and releases a murderer from within himself. And I stumbled upon this version when I was looking for all the different ones that I could find of Robert Louis Stevenson's adaptations of his work, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is on a DVD that I picked up with six other short films from the era. I decided one night to give them all a viewing as well, which at the time of writing this, this was the only one that was horror that I've seen so far. Now, with this being a silent film that only runs 12 minutes, there's not a lot here, but it is still pretty strategic in what it does in that time frame. It starts off with a medical textbook stating that there's a drug that can separate the good and evil within a man. Dr. Jekyll mixes up a tonic and drinks it, turning him into Mr. Hyde. Now, Dr. Jekyll here is portrayed, and Mr. Hyde are portrayed by James Cruz. What I like here is that Dr. Jekyll has white hair, and when he turns, some of his teeth blacken and then his hair goes dark. The transformations are pretty good for the era. We get a lot of stoic camera angles, mostly due to the technology of the time, and they do some hard edits for the change that comes over, you know, Jekyll to Hyde. But it could be worse, as I've seen, you know, with some of the CGI stuff that still doesn't work as well as just using this type of camera technique. Jekyll is also to be married to Florence, but things take a turn when they're on a date and Dr. Jekyll can't control himself and becomes Mr. Hyde, and he ends up attacking another person. I just like that this is brief in its time. It is exploring that allowing the darkness of man out, you can be consumed by it. And I would say that I thought the acting was fine for the era. It is very stage play-like, which makes sense, being that this seems to be based more off of the play version of this story. And a lot of times that's the type of actors you would get in early cinema. The score with it does give off a sci-fi style vibe, so that fit as well. Not sure if this is the original score that was used with it, as I am with most silent films, but the selections they used on the DVD I had worked. I would say this isn't bad for the length that we get. My issue is that I know there's more to the story that can be fleshed out, but being that this is, I think, the earliest version of it, I still enjoyed it. Now, I can't rate it very high, so I'm going just slightly over average for just a short version of the story, giving it a 6 out of 10. And for my next review is going to be Best Worst Movie from 2009. This is directed by Michael Paul Stevenson, and it is starring George Hardy, Lily Hardy, and Peter Ray. Now, this is a documentary about the film Troll 2. So this is a documentary comedy drama from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.3 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with as a synopsis being the making of the film Troll 2 and its journey from being crowned the worst film of all time to a cherished cult classic. Now, I heard about this documentary, I think the first time from the 22 Shots of Moods and Horror, so I added it to my list. I checked it out after seeing a pretty heavy movie and needed something to unwind before bed, so I figured this would, you know, fit in there perfectly. This is a doc, like I said, about the making of Troll 2 and the cult following that it now has. Since this is a documentary, I'm not going to go so much as a recap as I would for a normal movie. Most of this does follow the actor Hardy, who starred in Troll 2 as Michael Waits. He started in that movie as he was starting out as a dentist in Utah, and he always wanted to become an actor. We see from throughout this whole thing that he loves to be the center of attention, and he ended up moving back to Alabama where this really starts out as he has a practice down there, and that's where he's originally from as it seems like he went to Auburn for college. And he didn't think much of this film that he was in until it came out, and he kind of distanced himself at first. But the more notoriety that came with it, the more he started eating up on that. Now, this documentary is being made by the child actor who starred as the lead. That is uh, Stevenson, who was Joshua. And he was hoping that Troll 2 would have been his breakout as a lead actor. The problem was the movie wasn't good. I remember seeing it back when it hit VHS. As I was a big fan of the original Troll movie. Now, I know I watched this once and it stuck with me. But I knew it wasn't good even back then as, you know, a child. Especially when that movie came out in 1990, so I would have been technically three years old, so I know I probably saw it when I was about five or six. We then go into learning about the cult following the movie has now. This actually reinvigorates Hardy, who goes around to different screenings to interact with his fans. My problem with him is that because he got a taste of success, he starts to think that he's really talented and that this movie is better than what it really is. It comes off semi-ingenuous, though. As we see when he goes to a horror convention in Texas and the United Kingdom, he's over it when he's not being treated as a star. 
And then learning the history of this movie and its problems through the production is what I really enjoyed about this. We actually get to see the director Claudio Fergazzo and his significant other Rosella Drudy, who wrote the film along with him. Meeting Claudio, his thoughts on the movie, and his standoff nature with the fans, I really enjoyed. It's very awkward though. It is ironic as I know he worked with Bruno Matai, and they were both in that era where they would rip off a lot of American films while working under pseudonyms that sounded like they were from the United States and thinking they were making masterpieces. Heck, Troll 2 is just capitalizing off Troll, which is something that Italian cinema did a lot of, where they would create a movie and then market it as it was a sequel to other things. I mean, major examples are Zombie Flesh Eaters, technically being Zombie 2, which is how I grew up watching it. Speaking that they were trying to claim that it was a sequel to Dawn of the Dead, you know, my favorite horror movie of all time. And then we get other things... Especially with Bruno Matai, who would steal a lot of different concepts and then make them into a movie with just slightly changing things, or he would mash up a bunch of different movies. And I remember growing up, as I said, with Troll as, I believe it's an early Empire film, even though that company would go on to be Full Moon. So, pretty much, to an extent, is Fergazzo is trying to carry on like that he is this masterpiece director, when he's really just made a lot of schlock as cash grabs and pretending that they were really good. Now, I'm not one to really step on the toes and try to raid on anybody's parade. I will admit, it has been some time since I've seen Troll 2, as I don't think I've seen it since I was a child. I'm sure I've seen things here and there, as it would be randomly on the movie channels when I was growing up, so I probably rewatch scenes. But I do have plans to rewatch it and, you know, do a full review eventually. I do know that it isn't as bad as I remember, but I can't go as far as some of the people in this movie who just have all-out love for it. I really respect the story behind the making of it for sure. It really has the workings of being a cult film in that it was made serious, but just fell apart. And that's the way that movies like this really do get that status. I feel bad for the actors that were in it and the effects it had on their career. But for the most part, they all do seem to be mostly fine. Now, I do know there's one guy who was in and out of mental hospitals and Margot Prey wasn't doing great when we get to see her interviewed in this movie as well. Overall, this is a fun documentary. If you like the story of how things get made, I would definitely give this a viewing. It isn't technically horror, but since the movie it is covering is a horror movie, I feel that it counts. As I've said, this is above average documentary. I don't personally like that they follow Harding as much as they do, as I found the history of the production to be more interesting. It is just interesting, though, to see George go on and on and kind of just command the screen and just just really need to feed on being, you know, as important as he kind of thinks he is. Again, if he ends up hearing this, I do apologize. I just didn't find it as interesting as the history of the production. But my rating here is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Listen, baby, you're going to talk to me sooner or later. You can't just disappear. Ever since you left, some kind of thing's been coming out of the woods every night. I'm all crazy without her. I'm going around town telling people there's a big bad wolf trying to blow our house down. Maybe she got tired of waiting around. She just tell your sister she's gonna just come on home. Yeah, kitty, kitty, kitty. You see what it did to my door? How do you know though? I saw it. One town, don't have someone saying they've seen something they can't explain. You're right about most things, but you're wrong about one thing. You are enough for me, Abby. Hell, I'm not entirely convinced it's not you. You're like a werewolf or something? Okay, and for my first feature review of this episode, I will be doing After Midnight, which came out this year. It is written and directed by Jeremy Gardner, 
and Christian Stella also helped co-direct. This also stars Jeremy Gardner, Bria Grant, and Justin Benson. This is a drama horror sci-fi film from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, when his long-suffering girlfriend disappears suddenly, leaving a cryptic note as her only explanation, Hank, who is Gardner, his comfortable life and his sanity begin to crack. Now this is a movie that I kept hearing things about and I was pretty excited to check it out. It was made even better when the Gateway Film Center was going to be showing this movie so I could see it on the big screen. Now, I've seen some of these actors work in similar type of films. Um, not necessarily creature features like this one is presenting from things that I had heard about, but just the budget and with what they had to work with. So that helped with my expectations. And I will say at the time of recording this, I haven't seen Gardner's previous film, The Battery, which I've heard so many great things about. But after seeing this one, I definitely will be checking it out at some point soon. This movie doesn't waste any time to get us into it, though. We see Hank as something is attacking his front door. He shoots a hole in it with a shotgun. Now, through information that we're given, this has happened every night since Abby, who is Grant, has left. Now, as he's trying to defend his property, he is sinking into madness from the lack of sleep and worrying what happened to his girlfriend. Some background information that we're also given through flashbacks and through just interactions is Hank and Abby run a bar in town. She is the sister of the local sheriff, who is Benson. His good friend is also a local at this bar, Wade, who is Henry Zambrowski, who I'm not going to lie, is absolutely hilarious in this movie. Being that this is a small town, Hank is trying to find... Now, he's trying to hide that Abby has left, which I know all about as I grew up in a small town, and it isn't always the easiest thing to do. The question then becomes, is this a monster that is really bothering Hank real? Or is he trying to deal with his grief by having something that he can blame for his ascent into madness? Or could Abby herself be this creature that is tormenting him at night? Plus, the more we learn about the relationship, things aren't always necessarily how they seem. Now, as I tend to do with some of these newer films, especially ones that are independent like this, I wanted to go a little bit briefer on my recap as to not spoil anything. But this film also doesn't have the deepest story, as I really think that the synopsis that was a couple sentences long really kind of just tells you what this movie is about this isn't really driven by the story it is more about figuring out what is really tormenting hank and learning more about these characters as it is way more character driven if i can give this movie any credit it is in the development of the characters as i was saying through seeing what happened with hank as well as the flashbacks i know so much about both of these characters without necessarily being told these things it is through body language facial reactions and just things that are being said not necessarily coming out and saying it, but just roundabout ways. Hank is a good old boy. He grew up in this town. He lives in his family home and never really seemed to have, you know, left the area or anything like that. And he also seems like he doesn't have the biggest ambitions, which I know all about as a lot of my friends seem very similar to this, the ones that I went to high school with at least. Now, Abby, on the other hand, she went away to Miami to go to college and her intentions were never to move back. She got a taste of culture and just a different type of life where she learns there is much more to it than what she grew up with, and she doesn't want to give that up. But she fell for Hank when she came home for a summer. There is a monologue that I'd heard people talking about with this movie, and I'm not gonna lie, once that was delivered, I really felt that deeper than I was expecting to. And I even told my girlfriend that as this movie was ending, as she went to see this with me. Now, it's not necessarily in the same way that it's hit Abby or some of the things that she's saying, but her and I are similar in age, and I've been through similar crises with things that are in my actual life. Apart from that, I liked Benson as Abby's brother. He is the voice of reason, and his arguments to Hank are quite logical. Now, what he's trying to tell him is that there can't be a monster, but it doesn't change the fact that we're seeing him deal with something every night. And I really like how Benson goes into this about how he could walk around this small town and ask people if they've seen a ghost or if they've seen a UFO. And it makes a whole lot of sense. And as I was thinking about what he was talking about later on, I was pretty shocked because I think he's right where I could do something similar and get very close answers as well. And what also makes this better is for the setup of this movie, he's the only one who's seeing it. So it really makes you question, is it real or not? in that the monster that is plaguing Hank at night. I have to give mad props to Zimbrowski. As I was saying earlier, he is hilarious and he had me cracking up when he's on screen. I'm just gonna tell you there is something about a drink called Gorilla Farts that 
made me cringe but also made me laugh with just the way that he is talking about things and what he's willing to do now i do have to say not all of this film is great i thought the first half of this movie is wonderful we're seeing hank as he descends into madness over abby leaving and splicing in flashbacks of them being together these villains really did shift my perception of their relationship we obviously have our preconceived notions when we you know see what he's doing at the very start of it and then as things grow I started to realize that maybe Hank isn't as great of a guy as he th might think he is, or that he's not really being a full partner with his girlfriend. Now, the movie does bog itself down in the second half for me. It is interesting that at the end of the movie, I was on cloud nine while my girlfriend wasn't about this movie. We both slept on it, and then the following morning we talked. Her perception of it came up while mine went down. But I think we met on common ground for sure. I just think this movie didn't know what it wanted to do, and there were a few different ways that it could take it, but they just didn't do ones that really make sense for everything to work. And I'm going to have a spoiler section at the end so I can delve into this a little more as well. I will say though, there is a jump scare in this movie that got me so bad, I literally had chest pains until I went to bed. And I will also say that the ending here was good where things get left. As for the effects, we do get a glimpses of this creature in the movie. I'm not saying if it's real or not, so I'm not trying to spoil anything, but we get to see it. I was quite impressed that they really only give you a few glimpses of it, so you really can't critique it. I think that's a strategic move, but also it was done practically, which had me, you know, smile, to be honest. Cinematography gets credit here as well for being that it was hiding this creature as well as, you know, in general of the movie. I stated above that they linger on people, which really makes you understand some of their, you know, nonverbal communication. If I had any issues here, there's a scene that start of the third act that makes sense and was really good, but I just don't think it will hold up for me on a second viewing. Then the last thing to be with the soundtrack, what I really liked here is that there are a few times that we get actual ambient music, and it's used strategically in that it comes to an end naturally or someone stops it, and I really like that it was memorable for someone like me who doesn't always notice the soundtrack. It necessarily isn't one that I'll revisit, but it left its mark on me regardless. Now with that said, I really like this movie as I left the theater, and the more I sat on it, the lower my rating has become for it. That's not to say it's bad, as that's not the case. I think they did really well in introducing some deep and complex characters that are grounded in reality. Heck, I know characters that are similar to this in my friends group in real life. I like that this movie is presented as it could be real or it could be an allegory. The issue then becomes that I don't like how this ended though, I don't like how they try to explain semi how things are going and just I like the ending itself but just some of the things that happened to lead up to it didn't work. One of my favorite scenes, I'm not entirely sure if that will hold up with a second viewing. The soundtrack fit and I like what they did with it. I thought what we could see of the monster was good and the cinematography was used strategically. With that said, after this first viewing my rating here would be above average. And I think this will be one that I'll probably have to revisit again before the year ends to see how I feel. So after this initial viewing, I'm going to be at a 7.5 out of 10. Now what I'm going to go ahead and do is slide into a spoiler section. If you don't want to hear that, I will have it time coded so you can skip ahead. But I'm going to start the spoilers here. I like that they established that this monster plagues Hank after Abby leave. My thought is that when is that she was the monster that is bothering him. Heck, he even tells her that he thought the same thing in the movie itself. The curveball is that when she comes back, her infamous monologue scene is great, but that's the one that I'm saying I'm not sure if it's going to hold up with a second viewing because it is so long, and it really does bog the movie down in my opinion. But what is interesting, what I was saying, is that this first night she is back, the monster doesn't attack. So I'm still on this path, you know, while I'm watching this, that she's the monster. The major spoiler here is that Hank realizes he needs to change and to be with Abby, which I thought was great. So he sings her a song on a karaoke machine and tells her that he wants to go with her and experience the world. The monster then attacks him in front of the group of friends on her birthday party. And that is the jump scare that literally gave me a heart attack where I thought I'd do something because my chest was hurting so bad it was such an effective scare. Then it got me thinking. Hank does mention that this house kills his family. That could be taken as something like alcoholism or just small town life. I think though, it should have been built up that this monster kills his family if they weren't gonna have Abby be the creature or make it that it's not real and it's him just ascending into madness over possibly losing the love of his life or needing something to hunt. 
I don't like this last one that I'm throwing out there, but I just don't think it works with how they play everything out here. At least for me, it doesn't. I think by the ending as they do, it just doesn't fit what they're working toward. I will say though, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what I'm proposing or what you think the ending could be signifying. But with that all said and taken care of, I'm gonna go ahead and kick us over to the trailer for our next featured review. This was Abby. This was Abby. <laughs> A woman loved and in love. Until that night, when something evil came looking for a soul to possess. I can't stop thinking about your husband. <laughs> that creep. Forget him. Was this Abby? Now the fun starts. Hold her. Hear me, demon. Leave this woman's body! Abby. Rated R. And for my second featured review of this week, it is going to be Abby from 1974. This was directed by William Girdler. And it was written by Gordon Cornell Lane, who also came up the story along with Girdler. This stars Carol Speed, William Marshall, and Terry Carter. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.5 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being marriage counselor who becomes possessed by the demon of sexuality when her father-in-law frees it from while on an expedition in africa he returns home along with his son and a policeman to perform an african exorcism on her now this was a film that i heard about through podcast and that it had an interesting backstory it appears that this was pulled from being shown a couple weeks after it was released as it is a black exploitation version of the exorcist now the reason is that there was a lawsuit from the people behind the exorcist to prevent this from doing any sort of work and and I know that it kind of just got shut down, which is also the reason that it really doesn't have a proper release at this time as well. And I do have to apologize for something I said in my last episode. I didn't realize coming in as I was going to, you know, write my review and then record this to realize that Girdler is not black. This is still a black exploitation film, which is why it's still going to be on here in honor of Black History Month. So because it falls into that subgenre, I'm going to continue with doing it. I just wanted to apologize and make sure that if anybody caught that, that I was not, you know, ostracized for any sort of reason. Not that I expect any of my listeners to do that, but just still wanted to make sure that I covered myself as well. Now we start this movie off with Bishop Garnet Williams, who is the amazing William Marshall, who is on a send-off party with his students. Now I'll admit, this is a bit ham-fisted to introduce that Garnet and his backstory. Now he's a doctor of theology, amongst other things, and he's going to Africa on an archaeological dig. This takes him to Nigeria, where he comes to find something in the honor of Ishu, who is the Nigerian god of sexuality. It is opened, and then something flees from it, and as we see it is just smoke and wind that is coming out of this container that he's open as well as we get to see flashes of a spooky face then back in the united states a family is moving into a new home where we have reverend emmett williams who was portrayed by terry carter now he's the son of garnet there does seem to be some kind of a strained relationship that we learn about over dinner not too long after this introduction now emmett is married to abby who is carol speed also helping them move in is her mother, Miranda Potter, who is Juanita Moore, and then her brother, who is a detective of Cass Potter, portrayed by Austin Stoker. That night, Emmett is woken up by something that's in the attic as it's making loud sounds as things are falling down. Now, he wakes up Abby and she scolds him for doing this. The two of them end up making love, though, but the next morning we see something stalking her in the shower. All we really get to see is a shadow that is on the curtain as it's engulfing her. We then get some scenes that something's not quite right about her as she goes into a violent coughing episode in church while her husband is giving his sermon. And she also has some pretty vulgar outbursts as well. Abby is then taken to a doctor for tests, but they can't seem to find anything wrong with her. 
Emmett reaches out to his father, who is still in Africa. At first, Garnet really doesn't s seem to think that there's anything too serious here, but then soon realizes that he might be the cause of this, as Abby becomes more violent and her family starts to fear the worst. Now, I guess I should really cover the elephant in the room that I've already introduced in my introduction for this movie, being that this is a knockoff of The Exorcist. It is the reason I'm assuming this doesn't have the proper release, like I said earlier, as the courts ruled in this case, and Girdler actually really didn't see any money from this movie. And I have to admit, it is hard not to see the similarities between them, but I will give Abby credit, as there are some twists on it. Now we have Garnet, who goes over to Africa and unleashes this entity. This is not that much similar from, from the character that was portrayed by Max von Sydow in The Exorcist. It then takes over someone and has them act out of character. We see that with Reagan. There's the sequence where they get tested as they're at a hospital and being told there's nothing wrong with them and that mental illness could be the next step. This one does have some of that as well. We also see the perversion of religion here where this is interesting as Abby is a you know God-fearing woman who does a lot with her church and volunteers her time a lot where in the other one, the family is not religious. But we do get to see some things that Regan does while she's possessed at her, the perversion of religion there. We also get flashes of the demon's face, which are spliced in at different times, are in both of those movies. The exorcism scene is kind of similar as well, but then again, all of these things are done with a black exploitation twist. It is interesting, though, that they were done in the same year, so the only explanation that I can think for some of these things is that Abby does come out on Christmas Day, surprisingly, in the United States. So it must have tweaked their movie with some of the things they saw. And I'm wondering if Girdler and Lane had read the novel and just took some things out of that, you know, with this twist that they have with the characters they're using. And then despite the similarities, I like the changes this film does. It doesn't make it better necessarily, but we are seeing some different aspects for sure. The first thing is that Abby is an adult woman. She is married and is a beacon of her church. She just got her license to be a marriage counselor. But even more than that, she volunteers a lot of her time there. And as I said earlier, is a God-fearing woman. On top of that, she's married to Emmett, who is the local minister. I really dig this movie for having the demon wanting to get revenge on Garnet, who released it, as well as someone that could possibly defeat it. Instead of having the loss of innocence of a child, we have the corruption of a woman who is living within the rules of her religion, and the demon is perverting that. Going along with this idea of religion, being that this is showing the culture of African Americans, I use the term here as Garnet is studying things over in Africa. I like that it is combining their past of this African deity of mischief and sexuality with that of the more modern culture of black people and their newer Christian beliefs. This is embodied a lot by Garnet as well. During the exorcism scene, he's wearing his Catholic priest garb but he also dons a more traditional African priest clothing on top of it. I think this is the marrying of the two in order to save Abby. And then taking this to the pacing, I thought this was well done also. It benefits from only running about 87 minutes, and I also think that they remove fillers by doing that as well. There's actually a deep story here though, where Garnet is proud of his son, but there seems to be some animosity towards his father. It doesn't necessarily delve too much into it, but I'm assuming it is because his father was so wrapped up in his work that he semi-neglected. By coupling that strained relationship with the perversion of Abby, the two are needing to come together, and that also includes black culture from the past to the present as well. I think we see the progression of what happens to Abby and where things end up. The ending was solid for what we were building to as well. Something that wasn't the greatest across the board was the acting. I'm not going to come down too harsh on this for the caliber that we get, and then that's a lot of it is in the constructs of the budget that they're working with. That's not to say that we don't get some good acting, though. I'm a big fan of Marshall, and I just love the presence that he has on screen. It is great to see him go from something like Blackula to Garnet here, as, you know, this is a good character where that was the semi-villain of that movie. I just believe him to have this prestigious and respectful type person. Carter is also good, and I like the growth of his character. Speed is also along in the same vein there. I love seeing her normal, so we get that baseline, and then what happens to her as she becomes possessed. She has a few moments of overacting that did kind of stand out to me. I do have to admit that. I thought Stoker was fine in support. And the real issues that I have with the acting, though, comes in the form of the other supporting actors. They just feel amateurish, 
And I think part of that is how things are written to and introduce things. And just with people that don't have the most talent, it really just doesn't come off as well. I also have to give props to Bob Holt, who does the voice of the demon, as it was pretty creepy if I'm going to be honest. As for the effects, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot actually. I like the makeup that was done for the possessed Abby. They lightened her skin and put contacts in, which made it look pretty, you know, scary if I'm going to be honest. We get the use of smoke and other random effects as well. They don't really stand out, but for a movie like this, they don't really have the budget and it didn't really need to have all that much in this department. I will say what we get though is effect. I also thought the cinematography was well done and I had no complaints. Now with that said, this is a movie that was better than I was expecting. I knew this was considered, you know, the black exploitation version of The Exorcist. And I'm pretty sure one of the alternate titles of this is The Blackxorcist. I can see that here. And I can also see that it is pretty different in what they're working with as well. It has some interesting concepts that are explored and actually ticks off some of my boxes for things that I really like to see played out, which if I haven't explicitly said it is the perversion of religion. The acting of the stars is good, but there are some slight issues with some of the supporting players. Not a lot in the way of effects, but it doesn't necessarily need them. I never got bored and I thought that they built the story in an interesting way. The soundtrack was fine for what was needed, and if I'm gonna be if I'm gonna comment on anything, it would be the creepiness of the voice done by Holt. I'd say this is above average. It does have some minor flaws, but overall is an interesting piece of cinema for sure. And just a few bits of trivia that I also kind of picked up here was that Carol Speed landed the part of Abby after the original actress demanded to have a masseuse for which this film's low budget didn't have the provisions for. Speed's agent recommended her to the director Girdler, and she flew out to Louisville and actually met him the first time they were on set together. And I do also know that Marshall was upset as there was some things he wanted removed from the script, but it never actually happened. So he kind of was soured on the production in general because of that. But I don't really think I have anything else that I want to say. So since I haven't actually officially gave my numeric rating, I'm going to come in with a 7 out of 10 for this movie. Now what I'm going to do is send you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Kissed me and he walked away 
Okay. I wanted to thank you once again for listening to episode 16 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. But to close out the show, if you want to send me an email, you can do so at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews that I have for any of these on this podcast or anything else, that is Reviews of the Dead, and that link is horrorreview.webnode.com. I also have the link in the show notes. On Facebook, you can add me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And on FlickChat, it's Journey with a Cinephile. To download that app and then to go to find those message boards that are on there. And what I think I'm going to do for next week is going to be the start of what I'm dubbing the Centennial Club as I'm going to have a featured review of The Lodge, as well as from 1920, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I think they kind of have some similar story elements, so I think they should pair up pretty nicely, and it's interesting to look at two different movies that are pretty much 100 years apart as well. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day. David Garrett Jr. signing off.